Well, I want to ask you all a question this morning. In fact, I originally planned on grabbing this mic down here and coming out into the crowd, something I don't normally do, and hearing from you for a change, and asking you this question. I was just curious to see what you'd say, kind of put you on the spot. Why did you come to church this morning? It's a fair question. Why did you come to church this morning? I'm sure we would have gotten a lot of different answers because we all are at different places in our lives and are experiencing different things and maybe what you said, your answer this Sunday would be different than your answer last Sunday and maybe different from your answer next Sunday and Um, But I'm curious, why did you come to church this morning? Think about how you would answer that question if I called you out. See, the answer to that simple yet profound question tells a lot about what we think church is and what we think we're doing here. I recently came across a helpful little book entitled, How to Walk into Church, my kind of book. Look at that. Real little. In fact, it's called A Brief Book. (laughs) And it's written by an Australian pastor named Tony Payne. He was uh, one of the co-authors of that book, Trellis and the Vine, that we highlighted several years ago and encouraged uh, you to read that. But um, it's a helpful little book, and I wanted just to read for you the opening pages, and I trust you'll be as encouraged and challenged by them as I was. How to walk into church. I suppose it must have happened upwards of 2,000 times by now. I exit the car, usually with a wife and various kids in tow, and amble into the front door, tossing off a quick greeting to whomever is handing out the folded sheets of paper that in church speak are called bulletins. After a quick scan of the seating situation, who has already parked themselves where, who I might want to avoid, and so on, I choose a spot not too near the front and sidle into the chosen row, smiling feebly at the person sitting on the other side of the seat that I've politely left vacant between us. And there it is. I've walked into church. Not exactly a taxing or impressive feat and hardly worthy of having a book written about it, even a very short book like this. But things are rarely as simple as they seem. It doesn't take very much thought to realize that walking into church is a much more complicated and important subject than it first appears. In reality, there are countless different ways to walk into church. See if you find yourself in any of these scenarios. For example, if it's your first time walking into a particular church, then you might be wondering what sort of place it is whether you'll recognize anyone and whether it will be possible to avoid that enthusiastic-looking usher making a beeline for you. You might walk in hesitantly or apprehensively with a a murmuring hope in your heart that you'll find answers today to the questions that haunt you. You might be walking into church for the first time in a very long while. On the other hand, perhaps you've walked into church every Sunday for so many years that any sense of apprehension, expectancy, or searching has long since evaporated. Perhaps you walk into church with the same kind of resigned sag to your shoulders that you have when you walk into the office. 
You don't have high expectations, and they're quite likely to be met as they were last week and the week before. Or perhaps your walk into church will be like mine often was during those years when our five children were all under the age of 12. We've got a few of those in our church. After a week of long days and short sleeps, followed by the chaos of getting everyone out the door on a Sunday morning and culminating in a circus of noise and infighting in the car, I didn't really walk into church, it was more of a stagger, followed by a semi-collapse into a seat, followed by lengthy periods of zoning out. Then again, some of us often walk into church in a manner not too different from walking into a stadium or a shopping center or a movie theater. We walk into church expecting to participate in some larger experience or to gain some tangible benefit, something that will inspire and uplift us, something that will help us in our lives and that will repay the investment we're making by being here on Sunday morning instead of sleeping in. Of course, many Christians also walk into church with a sense of joyful expectancy. Perhaps that is you most Sundays, or at least a decent number of them. You're looking forward to meeting with God and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're looking forward to the warm encouragement you get, mo- get just from being with them, to the stimulation and challenge of the preaching, to the joy it is to sing together in praise of God and all that he has done. And then he asks the question, how do you walk into church? The answer to that not-so-simple question will partly depend on what sort of church you're walking into. Whether it is one riven by divisions and quarrels, for example, it will also be significantly influenced by how things are going in your own life and whether you got a decent night's sleep the night before. But most importantly, how you walk into church will be determined by what you think church is and what you think you're doing there. If you think church is a bit like going to the movies... You might walk in expecting to be entertained or inspired. If you think church is an opportunity for personal devotion and worship, you'll probably walk in not wanting to interact too much with anyone else. If you think church is something you have to do in order to do the right thing or stay on God's side, you'll walk in with a determination to do what needs to be done and then leave as soon as possible. Well, the author's simple goal in this little book is to help people understand what the Bible says about church, what church is, why we go there, and what we're supposed to do while we're there. And today I want to begin just a a short summer series on what the Bible says about church. I want us to think biblically about what the church is and and why we come here. And uh, when we planted this church back in 1999. It's hard to believe that. Some 17 years or so. I'm not so good at math, but it was, I remember it was the fall of 1999. Um, I was very deliberate and intentional about laying a biblical foundation for our new church. And so I chose to preach through books of the Bible that focus primarily on ecclesiology, which is the theological term for the church, the doctrine of the church, you know, what, what, what uh, is the meaning of the church? What is the purpose of the church? And so we began, our first um, series was in the book of Ephesians, probably the, the greatest uh, ecclesi- ecclesiological book in the whole New Testament. Nowhere is the church defined and, um, and explained better than the book of Ephesians. And so we felt like that would be the perfect book to kind of bring, bring in the, 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 the concrete truck, if you will, the cement mixer, and, and lay a strong foundation for this baby church. 
the book of Ephesians. So we did that for a couple years, 2000 to 2002. And then uh, being a young pastor at the time where people actually sometimes looked at me when I told them I was a pastor, and they go, you're a pastor? You're like too young to be a pastor. I'm like, you got to start somewhere, right? Um, and so as a young pastor, I thought, you know, I want to go through um, the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, um, these young ministers that he mentored. Uh, I want to go through those as a young pastor um, because uh, I just want to learn as much as I can learn from the Apostle Paul uh, alongside Timothy and Titus. And so I got into a series on the, the pastoral epistles and little did I realize how much ecclesiology is there. It's really uh, uh, three books about not just about being a pastor, but about the church. And I was so thankful that we uh, went through those books from the really 2003 all the way to 2007. Um, how many years is that? Four years. We, we were in First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. And then after that, I thought, well, man, we really need to, to do a better job of, uh, you know, we've been focusing so much on the church you know, and who we're to be. We need to focus on what we're supposed to be out there and, and, and we're supposed to be God's witnesses, right? And, and uh, to make disciples of all nations. And I thought, let's, let's go through the book of Acts because that's all about, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And we, we, we talked about, man, look at the early church and how dynamic it was. And, and, and well, again, we learned a ton about ecclesiology. What is the church supposed to be uh, in our study of the book of Acts, obviously, and the need to reach out uh, to the lost world around us. And so all that to say, for really the first 10 years or so of Lakeside Bible Church, we were strategically expositing these books, and, and they played a critical role in defining and clarifying who we are as a church and why we do what we do and why we don't do certain things. And I've noticed that in the last five years or so, um, the Lord has brought a lot of new people to our church. In fact, the stars even commented, having been gone for nine years, they feel like they're coming back to a, a different church. It's just a different group of people. And that's just what happens uh, in the life of any church. And, and so we've got a lot of new people, and particularly younger families, and some who are younger in the Lord, and um, who have never listened to those series that we did those first 10 years. And also, many of our children who are the next generation of our church, they were quite a bit younger when we went through those foundational books. In fact, our youngest son, Jacob, he was a newborn in fall 1999, um, and now he's 16. So I guess that's the, we know the church is 16 years old because uh, it's the same age as Jacob. So, um, but they were younger, and so you think about that, 10 years ago, five years ago even, you know, your kids were five years younger, 10 years younger. And uh, sometimes I think about a sermon I preached 10 or so years ago, and I think, is it time to re-preach that again? And I sometimes think, okay, let's see, Hannah was, Hannah's 20 now, she was 10 back then. I think I can preach that again. I mean, that's a huge gap, how a, 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 a child listens to a sermon when they're 10 and when they listen to it when they're 20, wouldn't you think? Totally different experience. Furthermore, I, I just sense, as you do, that we are turning a new chapter in the life of our church with the addition of two uh, new pastors. And while we knew, know these guys are like-minded doctrinally and philosophically, we, we essentially have a brand new pastoral staff. I mean, Chris has only been here a year, right? And so really, it's an essentially all-new staff. And so as we move into the future as a church, I want to make sure that we are all one mind, one heart, striving together for the work of the gospel. 
At the same time, I want to avoid, by God's grace, the decline and atrophy that so many churches experience gradually over time. You know that's true. You, you've been in churches, right, that you've seen decline, you've seen atrophy. Uh, there are some churches that maybe 50 years ago were the like cutting edge church, dynamic, committed to, to the word of God and Christ-centered and God-honoring and, and they've just over time succumbed to the law of entropy. Everything goes from a state of order to disorder. Everything seems to break down over time. And so guess what? The clock is ticking here at Lakeside Bible Church. And if we're not careful, we could fall into that decline. We could begin to atrophy as a church. We could plateau, if you will, as a church, and we don't want that to happen. One of my all-time favorite books that I've read about the church is John MacArthur's book, The Master's Plan for the Church. This is a book we went through years ago together with some men on a Friday morning, and, and uh, there's a particular section that I want to read for you This is what John MacArthur said based on his experience at Grace Community Church where he's pastored for 45 plus years now. He said, quote, churches all seem to follow the same pattern of growth and decline. The first generation fights to discover and establish the truth. The second generation fights to maintain the truth and proclaim it. Yet often the third generation of a church couldn't care less. Why? He asked. Well, since they weren't a part of the fight the first few generations faced, they don't have anything at stake. They tend to take for granted the things that have already been established. He said, that scares me. The toughest thing to deal with in the ministry is indifference. It's heartbreaking to know that those who weren't a part of building the church tend to take everything for granted. Because they weren't a part of the battle, they didn't pay the price or appreciate the sweet taste of victory. There are many new people at our church who don't understand the sacrifices of time, talent, effort, and money that people made while the church was growing. People who haven't been a part of the fight involved in building a church become picky about little things that grow wrong. The child of apathy is criticism. And I think that's why it's so important for us to pass on our vision and our convictions to succeeding generations of our church. We don't want anyone who attends Lakeside Bible Church to feel just like they have um, secondhand knowledge, if you will, or having a secondhand experience, and, and, and they're able, or they end up becoming complacent or apathetic about what the church is or, or why they're coming here. I mean, let's face it, even the more mature believers who maybe have been here since day one We're not immune to complacency and apathy, are we? I mean, I, for one, in recent months, have felt a dryness in my soul, a lack of genuine zeal for Christ, a a leaving of my first love, a sense of just simply going through the motions and, and allowing the work of the ministry to be more of a drudgery than a delight. And I find myself in an unusual position this morning as the one who God has called to stir up the body by way of reminder, but also as one who needs to be stirred up by way of reminder myself. And that's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Peter said, therefore, I will always be ready 
to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent and also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter was acknowledging that he felt the weight of the responsibility to be always reminding people of what they already knew, what they had already learned, that he was to stir them up by way of reminder. And and there are some, some basic things about Christ and his church that must never be forgotten, and there's virtue in repeating them. And so that's what I'd like to do over the next couple of months here, July and August, as we prepare for the fall and kind of kicking off another year of ministry. Um, I want us to, I trust and pray, be stirred up by way of reminder. I don't know that you'll hear anything new that you haven't heard before as we go back over, not necessarily our series in Ephesians or our series in the pastoral epistles or our series in the book of Acts, but, but just the truths of Scripture that uh, we've learned over the years. And for some of you, this may be the first time you hear these things, and that would be a joy and a blessing. But uh, hopefully we, again, can, can make sure that we are um, not in any way complacent about the church, but we're committed to the church. In fact, there's a question on your application questions there um, that I encourage you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being complacent about the church and 10 being committed to the church, where are you at? Be honest. In your own mind, in your heart, are you, are you uh, kind of leaning more towards the, and don't cop out and just put a 5. You know, I'm somewhere in the middle. No, seriously, think about it. Am I, am I more towards the complacent side of things? I'm admitting that that's where I am, right? Or are you more towards the committed side of things? And if you are, that's by the grace of God. Wherever you're at, you need to determine that. And I trust that this series is going to, no matter where you land on that scale, it's going to move us to the more committed side of that scale. Well, to begin, I want to simply remind you of the meaning of the word church. Figured that'd be the best place to start. We're going to talk about the church. While we come to church, well, what is the church? This word church used some 114 times in the New Testament, is the Greek word ekklesia. And it's a combination of two words, ek meaning out of, and uh, kaleo meaning to call or to summon. And so the word church simply means a gathering of those who have been called out or summoned by God to worship Him and to witness for him. So if you want a little simple definition of the church, the church is a gathering of those who have been called out or summoned by God to worship him and to witness for him. So the church, the ecclesia, is an assembly. It's a gathering. But a gathering of who? It's those who have been called out, who have been chosen by God to be part of this, the, 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 the group the, congreg- the great congregation of forgiven sinners who worship 
the Lord Jesus Christ and witness and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we must never forget is that the church is not where we go, but it's who we are. The church is not where we go, it's who we are. And, and we, we miss this all the time. We say, hey, what church do you go to? Well, I go to the Lutheran church. Oh, I go to the Baptist church. I go to the Methodist church. I, I go to the Bible church. Well, you're talking about a location, right? Or where is your church located? Well, it's 18940 Freeport Drive. Or it's located in you know, California. It's located in Michigan. It's located in wherever. It's a, it's a location. Or, or how many times have I witnessed people walk into our church for the first time and they look around and go, wow, what a pretty church. And what are they looking at? They're not looking at all of us, right, and saying, what a beautiful uh, group of people who are demonstrating the love of Christ. They're looking at the, the paint and the walls and the trimmings and the, they're looking at the architecture and, and they're likening the church to this building. So the church isn't a location, it's not a facility, it's a spiritual assembly of people who are dedicated to honoring and glorifying God with their lives. So again, this building is not the church. It's, 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 it's simply a place where we can be the church. We're the church. And if you took down the four walls of this church and we'd be just sitting out here in the grass, okay, like they do in Uganda and in Honduras in some places and in Africa and, 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 and India, guess what? There may not be a church building, but they're still the church. That was one of my... I thought the, the, the sweetest blessings of planting a church. I never planned on planting a church. Um, I, I kind of regret not taking the church planting class in seminary because I thought, oh, I'll never plant a church. I'm, so I don't need that class. <laughs> Cross that one off. I thought, man, I wish I could go back and take that class. But one of the joys of planting the church was, was being buildingless, propertyless. And, and so we literally rented space for the first few years. And. Um, kept everything the church owned in a trailer. That trailer you see out back there, the Lakeside Bible Church trailer, everything we owned was in that trailer. And we'd roll it up on Sunday morning, unpack it all, set it all up, and then it was all over. We would put it all back into the trailer and, and you know, go home. And uh, it was just a great reminder for all of us that there was nothing exciting about co- going to the cafetorium at the Montgomery Elementary School was like, wow, this is a sweet facility, you know, and, and uh, it, there wasn't, a, it was just a place to meet for us to be the church, and it was, so it was very easy for us at the very beginning to, to be reminded of that every week, that we didn't have a building, we didn't have a piece of property, and uh, I honestly was a little bit nervous when the Lord did provide us property and did allow us to begin to be, build buildings because we would lose that mindset just from the blessing of having property in a building. And so, again, it's important for us to remember that we are the church. And it's also important to note that this word, ecclesia, is used to refer to both what's called the universal church and the local church. You say, what's the difference between the universal church and the local church? The universal church refers to all the believers in all places around the world. That's the universal church. Anybody who is a truly born-again Christian is part of the universal church. 
Whereas a local church or local church is referred to believers who meet in specific locations and associate with certain denominations. And so you have the big C church, capital C church, is used to describe the, the church in general, the universal church. And little c, small c, church is what you used to talk about a local church. Um, there's what's called the, visi- the, the invisible church, and the visible church, you know the difference between, the two, between those two? The, 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 the invisible church is the universal church, same thing. In other words, you go into Walmart and, and you may be walking through the, the, the aisles at Walmart and, and guess what? You're walking by other people who are Christians, who are born-again believers. They've repented of their sin, they're trusting Jesus Christ. And you have no idea, you're just walking by them and it's invisible to you. They're invisible, right? They're part of the universal, you just don't know it. But then you show up on Sunday, you're like, hey, wait a minute, I saw you at Walmart the other day, and I didn't know you were, well, how do you know the, visible, the invisible church becomes visible in the local church? And so this right here, what we're doing today is the visible church. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, we're looking at each other, we can see, right, that we're a part of the church. Let's look quickly at some verses where this word ecclesia is used. Um, again, some verses that I'm sure are familiar to you, the first place that the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament is, of course, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was. And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my, what? Church. He's talking about not a local church there, he's talking about the universal church, the invisible church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So upon that rock, not Peter, Peter wasn't the first pope, um, that's what some, how some people interpret this passage. That rock that he was talking about wasn't Peter, but was his proclamation or profession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock on which the church is built, is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone of the church. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 17, it's in, in, when he's, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples about Uh, how to hold one another accountable when we sin. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the, what? To the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of saved ones, called out ones, forgiven ones. In the book of Acts, we see Paul persecuting the church. Of course, we know the church was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It never mentions that particular word, but you see the birth and the growth of the church uh, starting in chapter 2, and and as it continues to grow in Jerusalem, uh, Paul uh, is is seen persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Paul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, talking about Stephen's martyrdom, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church, the ecclesia in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Later on in the book of Acts, after God had gloriously saved 
um, Paul on the road to Damascus. He became the apostle to the Gentiles, um, the one who was going to reach the Gentiles and, and really reveal the mystery of the church, that there was this new gathering. It was not Jews and it was not Gentiles. It was Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And we may talk about that in the next few weeks, how shocking that was that Jews and Gentiles could be associated so closely in this one new body called the church. And so Paul reveals that mystery in the book of Ephesians. And uh, he was, of course, going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches all over Asia. And uh, at one point, he was revisiting Ephesus and he was meeting with the elders there. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, the ecclesia of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so Jesus died for the church. That's how committed Christ was and is to us as his ecclesia, as his gathering of called out ones. He was willing to give his life for us. Look at Romans chapter 16. Just giving you a feel here for Romans chapter 16, a feel for how this word is used as it's developed throughout the New Testament here. Romans chapter 16 Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sancria. So this is a local church, small c, right? A local church meeting in Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house, verse 5. Again, talking about local churches that were sprouting up all over Asia Minor. As people were hearing the gospel and, and, and repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus Christ, they were coming together and forming these local bodies of believers in, 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 in Ephesus and in the Galatian region and in Thessalonica and, 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 and uh, all the, the cities you think of, Philippi, Colossae, um, Corinth. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians there, we're, we're right there, uh, verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, small c, local church there in, in Corinth. Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, we were just uh, thinking about communion, and this was in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe you. Again, when you come together as a church, as the ecclesia, as the called out ones in the city of Corinth. In other words, there's all these, uh, the invisible churches there, right? And, and, and God, the gospel comes in and people get saved, and all of a sudden the church becomes visible. It was like, there's one, there's another one, there's another one. And we all start gathering together to worship the Lord and praise him for our great salvation and then mobilize to witness to other people. That's the idea here. 
chapter 14, verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church, the ecclesia there. Verse 35, Paul said, talking about women and uh, remaining silent in churches, verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church, the ecclesia. And I don't want to get into all that this morning, but uh, we're not the, the, the church that tells you ladies to, to shut up and put a hat on, you know, and we don't want to hear from you, but there's definitely a, a place of order within the body of Christ and, and uh, a headship of Christ, the headship of the men. Right? and the submission of the women and all that stuff, we understand. But the point is, uh, he's taught using the word church here. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Paul's saying, man, if I went back to the churches in Judea, uh, they wouldn't have recognized me. And then we get into the book of Ephesians, which, as I mentioned earlier, is... is Probably the best book in the entire New Testament regarding the church. If you want to understand the church, you want to understand ecclesiology, what, what is the purpose of the church? Why do we go to church? What are we to do when we get to church? It's the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's the first time the word church is mentioned in the book of Ephesians. He goes on in chapter 2. We won't take the time to read this, but in chap- chapter 2, verses 11, all the way through uh, chapter or to verse 22, um, you've got this amazing description of the merging of Jews and Gentiles together, this amazing uh, accomplishment of the gospel to, to, bring, to, to create peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Chapter 3, he reveals the mystery of the church. Verse um, 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 21, I love this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond that, all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That could be the local church in Ephesus. It also could be the universal church. How about Philippians chapter 3, verse 6? Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. As to zeal, Paul sharing his testimony, a persecutor of the church. Again, universal church. Not just one particular church, but all the churches. He was running around and persecuting those churches. Colossians 1.24, I love this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. His body, again, obviously the big, big C there, universal church, even though it's not necessarily translated that in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, we're almost there. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 for you, brethren, become, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Again, now he's talking about small sea churches, local churches that are in Judea. And then when we come to the book of Revelation, obviously uh, we see a reference to the seven churches of Revelation, literal 
local churches. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then in every um, interchange that Christ had with one of those seven churches, it ends with this statement, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, you asked, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, with that as a background, what I'd like to do, and we don't have time to do it this morning, but just to give you a brief preview of next Sunday, I want to consider some of the familiar ways that the church is described in the New Testament. God used a number of very vivid pictures, uh, metaphors, symbols, if you will, to explain this mysterious thing called the church. And so by comparing the, the church to just common everyday things, God, I think, intended to provide us with compelling reasons not to be complacent about the church, but committed to the church. And so next Sunday, we're going to look at seven pictures to describe the church that should compel us to be connected and committed to the church. We're going to see how the church is a family, how the church is a body. It's like a marriage. It's like a temple. It's like a vine. It's like a flock. It's like a a kingdom. And so stay tuned for next Sunday, and we'll, Lord willing, go through those that list of of seven pictures. But for now, I began by asking you to consider why you came to church this morning. Why did you come to church this morning? How about this for an answer? Did any of you think of this? Did Did any of you have this come to mind as, man, if Ken came around and put that microphone in my face, this is what I'd say. Because it's the dearest place on earth to me, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. That cross anybody's mind? This is the dearest place on earth to me, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. If you'd asked C.H. Spurgeon, that's how he would have answered. Back in 1891, the Prince of Preachers, as he was called, made the following statement in a sermon to his congregation at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. He said this, quote, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had if never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect, a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. But then he said this, still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. He said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they're nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep. It is the home 
for Christ's family. Now let's be honest, for some Christians, maybe you, who have been deeply hurt by the church, confused by the church, this is far from being the dearest place on earth to you. Based on your experience, it's maybe more like the rudest place on earth, (laughs) or the most unfriendly place on earth, or the most hurtful or complicated or abusive or awkward or unloving or critical judgmental place on earth. Well, that may be your experience. However, God designed and intended the church to be the dearest place on earth for his chosen people. And we have a responsibility, as we will learn over the next few weeks, to minister to one another, to love and to serve one another in such a way that this truly is the dearest place on earth. Sounds good, huh? Do you want to be ministered? Do you want to be loved and served that way? So that this would become the dearest place on earth? Are you ready to love and serve and minister that way so that you can be a part, by God's grace, of helping that be the experience of others around you? Let's pray that that would be true. Father, we thank you for just even this brief introduction to the concept of the church. And it's more than just a concept. It's a, this is the greatest organism, institution, organization that has ever been thought of and established the church of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's a subject that is really beyond our human capacity, Lord, to to comprehend fully. But I pray as we go over some passages and principles these next few weeks about your church, Lord, that we would all be stirred up by way of reminder, and if there has been any complacency that seeped into our lives, into our hearts when it comes to church, and we've really lost sight of why we come to church, and, or maybe we've never even thought that deliberately and intentionally about what are we doing here? Why am I here? Lord, that this would be a, a, a very hopeful series, Lord, for all of us, or just um, to be reminded of what you intend this thing that we call church, um, that we're a part of, to, to be, and how we're to function, and that we would uh, love and, and, and care and, and serve for one another in such a way that this would, we all could truly say that this is the dearest place on earth to us. We ask you that for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.